The scars from the horror of the Holocaust run deep. While the children of the survivors of the Holocaust might not have experienced it in the same way as their parents, they're uniquely able to see a world that is simultaneously capable of unspeakable evil yet also kindness and respect. Hadassah Lieberman was born in Prague, the daughter of Holocaust survivors who immigrated to the U.S. when she was a young girl. She shares the perspectives she's learned through her life as a successful businesswoman, the wife of a U.S. senator, and immigrant. And then they came close to the Statue of Liberty. And she was thinking she had learned, Emma Lazarus, give me your tired, your poor, your masses yearning to breathe free. And it just, you know, stopped them in their hearts. It was a moment they were going to America. Mrs. Lieberman also reflects on the 2000 presidential campaign and disputed election when Al Gore and her husband, Joe Lieberman, were on the opposite ticket as George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. This is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Honored to be joined today by Hadassah Lieberman, whose memoir, Hadassah, an American Story, shares her compelling story as an immigrant, daughter of Holocaust survivors, and public health leader that has held positions at Pfizer, Susan G. Komen Foundation, and the National Research Council. Mrs. Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your amazing journey. Thank you. And our co-host today is freedom expert at the George W. Bush Institute, Chris Walsh. Always a pleasure, Chris. Glad to be here, Andrew. Thank you. Uh, Hadassah, I, I want to I start by, by talking maybe about something that might be overlooked by people. I mean, it's the name of your book, but your name. I was, I was really struck when I was reading it that uh, it, it was such a unique name, and I thought a really pretty name. And then, lo and behold, in the section I'm reading, while I have that thought, I flip the page, and you tell a very interesting story about how your father was talking to a group of Catholic nuns in Massachusetts who, who say, have the same reaction as I just did. Now, I will say, I am not a nun, but I am a Catholic <laughs> from Massachusetts. So maybe that's the common thread. But would you talk a little bit about your name and that story? Well, you know, when I was born, my father had to go. They were, I was born Czechoslovakia after the war. And my father went to the government to sign me up, register me. and. The, germ, the people who heard the name Esther, which is what he had named me after my grandmother who died in Auschwitz. And they looked at him and said, that sounds like a German name. Please rename her. So my father called me Hadassah. Esther and Hadassah mean the same thing. Esther is the original Persian and Hadassah is the Hebrew. So we came to this country immigrated. And then we finally settled in Gardner, Massachusetts, a small town up north near, not too far from New Hampshire. And my father had to write some papers out again. And the Catholic nuns were registering and helping people sign in. And so they sat there and my father said, and they were looking at the papers that said Hadassah. He said, her name was supposed to be Esther, so we want to change it now. And the Catholic nun sitting behind the desk said, Rabbi, don't do that. 
Hadassah is an unusual, unique name. Please keep it Hadassah. And my parents told me that story so many times, a symbol of what we are in America, of who we are in the United States, always. And to have Catholic nuns welcome us in that way to a new society, new language coming across the oceans in a boat and to welcome my name, a name they'd never heard of, into our midst. I love that story. It was fantastic. Thank you. So uh, we'd love to hear, you know, your, your story begins obviously with your parents. And so could you tell us some about your, your roots and your parents' story and, and how you came to be in the United States? Yes. Well, my parents' story, my mother was in Auschwitz and Dachau. And the story that I get got from her, she's since passed away. I include her diary in its translated form in the book, which talks about how she, her house, she and her family were taken over. Nazis just took the house over and set it up like a little command center, whatever, in that area. And she said, my mother was saying how she sat on a, on a chair trying to watch what they were taking, what they were looking at, because she said, I was the most brave to do that. She wasn't afraid. And she sat there watching them set things up, doing things, and she's with no regard it was a house for her family. And the irony is that my husband, Joe, and I, when Joe was is on the Barilan commemorative area in that area, Barilan, which is not far from where my mother was from in Rachel, Carpathian Mountain area, we went at their request, when he was going to the board meeting, they said, we know you both are from, your families are from this area. We will take you. So they took me to Rachov, and I looked around, and I saw some of the things that my mother had talked about, a garden in the back, animals, few here and there in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and a beautiful little town that reminded you of some skiing place with absolutely, there was one Jewish woman left. Everyone had been evacuated, killed. And so it was an amazing thing to behold for me. And Joe was sort of surprised because, and we had gone to the cemeteries and all of that, even though none of my relatives had been buried in the cemetery. And I said to Joe, I'm ready to go. And he was surprised because we still had a little time. And I just had to get out. I was, it was stifling. As a matter of fact, the mayor of the town, or whatever his title was, was very friendly, of course, to the senator and his wife. And a woman said, oh, she takes care of looking at the Jewish cemeteries. And it was just an awful, I just felt 
I, when I look at the Jewish houses that are in the area, these were, you know, Jews houses. It, it just was so unpleasant. I wanted out. I didn't want to be in this communist country. I didn't, even though they were nice, but I felt like they were pretending to be nice. And my father wrote his biography in the coldest winter. He was in slave labor camp. He'd been captured, put in. And then actually when he got out during liberation, before liberation, I'm sorry, they ran away with several men to a Christian family. They walked in, they didn't talk about being Jews or anything. And they just did, you know, farming work around the community before he was able to escape. And then my parents met each other afterwards. After my mother was in a different place, my mother had come from a different little area than my father. They would have never met before. They would have never married, I'm sure, before, because they were just into different things, different places. But my mother wanted to meet, you know, it was like trying to meet family because everyone had been knocked out. And so she sent my aunt when she heard someone wanted to fix her up. The pharmacist in her town knew this man, knew of this man, said he's a decent man. So she said to her sister, Rojanini, her name was Rojanini in Hungarian that I called her, who had no children. And she rushed to meet this man. My mother wouldn't even go. And she liked him. And they met and my father, this was after the war, was handling visas for people going. He had been in law school and he had also at an earlier point in time in a very religious family, he had gotten his smicha, his degree for the rabbinate. So he had both of these except to do law in America would have meant doing law all over. He was in about in his, I don't know, he was 48 or something when he had me as a baby. But they decided, and then all the stories of, of that background goes on and on. And my mother summed it up after the war was she obviously had a breath to be able to do it. And she would often say, I can't remember. I don't want to remember because when I remember, it takes me away. So she eventually just had a lot of blackouts in her memory, I believe. And so as a consequence, I read some stuff in these diaries that I never knew about her and them. and so. When they finally got on the ship, my mother said later in life to me, she said, Hadassika, she called me Hadassika. That's one of the ways that you refer to someone in a close way as an immigrant in those languages. And she said, Hadassika, there we were. We were vomiting on the ship from seasickness. And my little Hadassika is dancing with the captain of the ship. (laughs) 
So that was my introduction. And then later, my mommy told me that she remembers that trip. And then they came close to the Statue of Liberty. And she was thinking she had learned, Emma Lazarus, give me your tired, your poor, your masses yearning to breathe free. And it just, you know, stopped them in their hearts. It was a moment. They were going to America. And so they ended up coming to America. And that was when the story of my getting my name Hadassah. And we only talked Yiddish. That was the language that we knew. And my parents knew several others, but I only knew Yiddish, no English. And I went to kindergarten and the teacher had a basket full of candies and dolls and trucks. And when you were a good kid, she put it over your head and you got to put your hand in and get something. So I'll never forget that because I couldn't believe that I getting this free things at school. I came home. My mommy in Yiddish said, how did it go? How did it go today? And I looked at her and I said, mommy, I no speak Yiddish, only English. And she looked at me and she realized, okay, a new chapter. <laughs> so you, you, uh, your, your book has passages from your, from, um, from your mother's diary. And it's really, really beautiful. It really, really should read it. The, what I'd love to hear you talk about some is your parents could have chosen to go in any number of different directions when once, once they were liberated, but they chose to come to the United States. Do you have a sense for for why they chose the United States? Well, the United States was one of the dream places of everyone, I guess. My dad had wanted to go to Israel. And my mother, it was 48, 49, you know, 49. And that was, there was a war. And she didn't want to go into another war zone. She was afraid. So she said, no, let's go to the United States. So my father worked on that and got, was able to go and went there. And it was a dream. It was a salvation to these people. There were no dreams left. There was nothing left. There was, like my father said, when they were liberated, he remembers looking around at the streets that had signs to different places, different cities. And he said, where do I go? What do I do? Because there were no relatives. There was no, the home was not there. My aunt, Rojanani, went back to their home because she knew there were things buried in a trunk or whatever under the ground. And she came in, she said, can I come in? There was people living in the room, in the house already. And she went and she took a few sheets out. She was lucky she even did that because people said, why are you here? You were supposed to be killed. And that went on and on and on. 
So, of course, to find salvation, safety was a big deal. Big. You know, Hadassah, I think one of the challenges that we face in American society today, and we can debate on the different reasons, but is that there's a lack of connection sometimes, I think, specifically between current generations, but also past generations, to the values and ideas that have made our liberal democracy great. Now, this may be a clumsy comparison, but you are the daughter of Holocaust survivors, and I want to quote something that you said because I think there's this idea of a connection and how you find meaning, I think you put beautifully. And I, I'm wondering what, if you could tell us about it and, and, how, and how, you were, how that connected you to the past and why that was important. So what you said in the book was, every breath we took was a refutation of evil and an opportunity to leave our mark on the world. We weren't guilt-trapped into feeling that way. It was just how it was. And I think that that experience that you have being connected to the, the horrors of the Holocaust and why you decided to make things better, to live your life to the best, is, is incredible. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, partially that came from the strength. I look at it now. It's the strength of my parents to be able to raise me in that way. And they were, they were strong. And from my religion, Judaism, which I took seriously, that's how I was raised. And so there were values that were put forth. And I was supposed to be strong and an example to my children and now to my grandchildren. It's called. Tikkun olam, those are the Hebrew words, repairing the world. Now that's a big repairing the world. We can't, how do we repair the world? We have to, tikkun olam, our small, ourselves, our children, our grandchildren, our community, our churches, our synagogues. It's our responsibility, however far we can reach out to set an example. Look, I never saw anything like I recently saw in politics. You don't say what you want to say in whatever capacity as a leader you're in. You watch what you say. I'll never forget those were Joey's first words to me. We just got married and we were sitting with him and I think some of the kids were talking about something. And Joe looked at me and said, sweetheart, if you say that in public, it will be on the front page of the Hartford Current. I was shocked. So that was my first, I thought, oh boy, I better start this marriage right or I'll be in trouble. <laughs> so that's, that's what it is. You know, one of the one of the great things about America is how quickly within a generation fortunes can change. There's a great passage in your book about um, your mother getting to, to just start hanging out with, uh, with U S with U S senators because of it from, from going from a point in her life where people moved into her house because they didn't even think that she was a person to 
right. to walking the halls of the U.S. Capitol. It, it's it, it's a testament to to what is possible in this country. That's why I wrote the book. I had no choice but to write the book, to have a diary come forth from my mother, to have the background. You talk about all of that coming out of blackness, darkness, evil, and immigration, which began to show us light and going through the whole experience. And then I was so lucky to end up with Joe after I'd had a divorce and not knowing I would ever want to marry again and meeting each other and falling in love and having our children, combining, having one other, but our children. We were so blessed to be able to do that journey together. And how could I, from that background, not go out and try to write this total evolutionary story to say to people, even people who survived the hell of hells, we need a chance to change. But we have to make sure we keep our society strong, a democracy, a beautiful light to the nations, to the world. And we all share that. I, I love that sentiment. And I, I'd like to follow up on it, just thinking about how we, we protect that. How do we keep that light safe? And I, I think about how fragile it is. And I think about the experience of your parents, of your family, where they saw a society fall apart, where they saw they ended up on the most horrific side imaginable of what happens when a more open, a more free society goes in the complete opposite direction. What lessons can we learn from the experience of the Holocaust, from the experiences of Nazi Germany, to help protect democracy today and to remember why it's so important to, to remain committed to its, its strengthening? You know, obviously, so many people have concluded, dissected, reframed the whole topic of how did this happen in an in intelligent country of scholars, of musicians. They were looked at on a higher level, the German culture. We don't get it. We still don't get it. Anti-Semitism. We don't get it. Now, we know there are factors you can conclude. What we do know from these historic accounts, from these movies, documentaries that come out, is that everything also emanates from the voices on the street, from the voices in the school, from the voices in your family, unfortunately. The hatred that develops is striking. When we watch the latest Capitol, January 6th, it's shocking. It's nothing, we don't, we don't even know what it is. And yet we can 
count things. What we do know is when there's no respect and care taken with our words, and we don't care what's said in front of each other. It's something we have to be mindful of. I get, I personally get scared when I hear these accounts of anti-Semitism, of anti, all the stuff we know today without listing everything. And basically the inability for people to sit down at the same table, share a cup of coffee, just because you don't agree on this or that. Why can't we influence each other? That's what democracy is all about. We're supposed to sit together. We're supposed to talk about things that we each believe in that may be totally different from each other. And that is a task, again, getting back to what I said about Tikkun Olam, repairing the world, the small worlds. People, parents, people in communities have to feel responsible to create a solid environment that allows people to be honest and not be persecuted, not be hit. You know, I mean, these are things I never thought I'd ever talk about. Look, in 2000, I feel like 2000, it's not that many years ago. Sometimes it feels like 100 years ago with where we are today. And I say to myself, okay, maybe it's being exaggerated. I don't know. We have to be mindful. And I know it's the psychological way to talk to people who don't listen, who won't listen to what you say. But, you know, we have to be mindful of this and we have to force our schools to be forceful in how they teach children to be a community together how they teach respect for each other. I couldn't agree more. And I, Andrew, if I may, to, to, to pick up a thread that you, you started, and I'm, I'm asking this personally and for the podcast, but as a parent, I, I completely agree about the, the dinnertime conversations, the screens are banned from our dinner table, but, but I want to be fair to the, to the parents out there that are, that are struggling because there's a lot going right. on. And, and I know the temptation is there for a moment of peace. So, I, I, and again, I'm looking for your advice personally as well as a parent. You, you were a working mother in the 80s, and you had your challenges. And I, I would wonder, what, what was that like? How, how, how were you able to keep your family stable and be there for your children while also trying to provide for them? You know, to be a, a mother who works and particularly coming out of it in the way that I did where more women were working, but it still wasn't the total norm as today. It's very much the norm. We have to show our children. We love them. We care about them and we have standards Having religion as a source of knowledge is very important because it grounds us. 
and is supposed to teach us to respect others and to be good people. I think having a religion is very important. And we need strength today that we can lean on. Look, we have all kinds of things going on with health, with questions on pandemics, on vaccines. I don't know about you, but I've never felt so, like on a certain level, I feel more vulnerable with all these questions. And that's why when I wrote my book, it was strengthening to me because I watched myself grow. I talked about myself growing and being strong despite the challenges. There's no specific answer to that question because we're all individuals. And in some ways, the freedom we've given each other to accept anything in a society may not be the best, strongest ways for a family, children, grandchildren to grow in. Maybe there are too many options, too many questions. I'm not advocating less freedom, but maybe maybe as a society, we have to really stand tall and strong together to protect our core values and make sure that there are core values we can believe in. Not I defend this president, I defend that president, and therefore we cannot come together. That's no way. That's not the U.S. That's not the way we've been. I know my husband always loved President Bush, and they always worked closely together. And, you know, that's nice because at one point they were running, you know, in oppositional sides. And that was not anything. And I'll never forget when Joe shared, he didn't share that much, but when he shared something about after the election, I think it was actually on the inaugural day, and he bumped into President Bush. He said, you know, I'll be there for you. And when when he repeated that to me, I was very touched by it because that's what a democracy needs. It's absurd to do it the way we're doing it. Some of us are doing it. And I know I have close relatives who don't want to be or talk to people that don't accept what they accept. And we all have friends like that. And we all have people who don't want to be friends on the basis of that difference. You, you brought up the 2000 election. Yes. In the, in, the weeks and, in the weeks after that election, looking back, we see now that that was a really historically significant time. The actions that Vice President Gore and Senator Lieberman took to... They they wanted to make sure the vote the votes were counted, and then they they spoke and said, "This is we're going to move forward together as a country." At the time, did you did you feel the weight of history on you at that moment, or more just you're you're just living your day to day? Oh no, it wasn't day to day because that was that was such a weird in between. We didn't know what was going on. I didn't fully get the weight 
of how important their decision was when it was made. And you know what? You get later on, like our days today, the most recent elections, et cetera, et cetera. And you realize how central that behavior is that that they exhibited. My husband, President Bush, exhibited to each other. I'll never forget when we were campaigning in the Midwest. And, you know, I was on one plane doing, you know, you have to do divide yourself up all over the place. And I was going through the Midwest and it happened to be, we're in a town, I don't even remember which town it is. And there were people who came up to me. I don't know if they were Democrats, Republicans, or independents. They came up and shook my hand hard, really with a real grasp and said, we like your husband. He's a religious man. We like the way you are with your family. So God bless you. And that, you know, that touched me. And it wasn't, I couldn't say what that was, who they were, who were they going to vote for. Maybe they were non-voters. But we have to encourage people to talk in that way. But they have to feel they respect. And those people you know, I was saying to Joey this morning, we walk every morning, that I always remember the bonding we've had with people eye to eye. If they trust you, if you're honest, they may not want your brand in the White House, but we have to have people in leadership who are translucent, who are honest, who are direct, and who can show how we need to appreciate democracy. And so here at the Bush Center, when we talk about immigration, we always try to remember the people behind the policy, because really no one wants to leave the only home they've ever known. But in some places, circumstances are so bad that there's really no choice. So can you reflect on that and what it was like for you and your parents in this foreign culture? You know, my father, he remembers the Heil Hitler signal. And then when the communists came in with theirs, he said, I want to immigrate out of this country. I don't want any more symbols, fist swings. So I guess I've learned too much from reading, knowing past experiences from parents who survived through regimes well, that were out to murder them, to kill them, to put, enslave them. Like my father said, as he walked through, as the march that they had up to, I think it was Siberia, whatever, in the snow, and so many men marching with him would fall down into the snow face forward and die. And he would say, see, there's a Jewish prayer, traditional prayer, Kaddish, a memorial for the dead that you're supposed to say 
over a person who's died for it, you know, and in, in, in memoriam every year, first year, you do it often. And he said, I'll never forget, I kept saying, who, in the midst of nothingness. So these people were tortured, tormented. Then they learned to speak English. They learned, you know, my mother said, oh, Americanish of food. She didn't know some of the stuff people were eating or some of the stuff they were drinking. You know, it was like, oh, I can't eat that. I can't do that. And then you have your friends over who are American in Gardner, Massachusetts. They didn't know any Yiddish. They didn't know anything about a Holocaust, that background. And so they would sit in our house. And I was saying, it's so funny because I was saying how when you're an immigrant, you have to be so careful with your parents because they don't know the language as well as you do. And they can't even really fully communicate with your friends because they have the language differences, the custom differences. I'll never forget one party I had in my garage in Gardner, Massachusetts, that my mother dressed as a geisha girl with food and she gave them each food on toothpicks. And they said, oh, your mother's so sweet, you know? And I was, I was thinking that's something my mother never, she didn't know the geisha, whatever. She didn't know anything. And I was talking about the chapter of immigration in to my husband in a car that brought him to work. And I was, I had to get off in that vicinity. So I hitched a ride and his driver, a Pakistani man was sitting in the front and he heard me talking about immigration. And he said, Oh, my children need to hear that. They need to read that. Please let me know about it. And I was so touched by that because I was able to communicate something that had meaning to a Pakistani driver who drove Joe every day and understood the difficult task in being an immigrant, an immigrant parent, how hard they work and how they must be respected for their hard work. So I am so glad that you are asking me these questions today because I really respect and love what you are doing. Well, thank you. We, we, we really appreciate you taking the time with us to talk about it because we, you know, we, we feel strongly as an organization, President Bush has put out his out of many one uh, stories of American immigrants that, that every immigrant has a unique story and a unique way that they've contributed to this country. And, it's they've they've helped make us what we what we are together today and every story is an important story to hear yes every story and we the children have to tell and share those stories and we have to do that to strengthen the immigrant and to inspire the immigrant that yes they can be successful 
Yes, they have to work hard. Nothing's easy, but we are the United States of America. We're the beacon of hope to the world. We can't lose that and not allow people to talk about us so negatively or as if we have other agendas in mind. We are strong and we have to be proud of the strength that we illustrate through our actions. Ms. Lieberman, thank you so much for sharing all of your memories today with us. We really, really appreciate the time. Thank you for your wonderful questions. And thank you for sharing my story. I appreciate that. Be sure to check out Hadassah, An American Story. You can get it on Amazon. It's a, a really fantastic and powerful read, and it's a, it's a to-the-point book. It's not uh, one, an 800-page Walter Isaacson, Isaacson tome. It's a, it's a really, it packs a lot, of, a lot of important lessons into a really quick and compelling read. I um, really recommend it. Ms. Lieberman, thank you again. Thank you. Hadassah, An American Story is available now on Amazon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Strategist. Please drop us a note on social media at the Bush Center on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening.